Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a fantastic morning this morning. Um, it is May 22nd, 2020. Wow. What a year it has been this year. Well, this morning we're going to jump into a devotion. Um, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5. Now, Monday, go ahead and let you know, Monday, I will not be doing a devotion or anything online. I will be taking that day as a vacation day um, since it is a holiday. Um, so I will not be in the office. The office will actually be closed uh, on Monday. Uh, in recognition of Memorial Day. So, um, I will, after today, I'll see you Tuesday um, on for our time together. Um, but I hope everybody's having a fantastic morning this morning. Um, I'm going to pull up the scripture on the screen, uh, and we'll be in Romans chapter 5, verses 20. And 21 this morning. So, I've highlighted the scriptures for you guys, and we're going to read that, pray, and then jump into our devotion this morning. All right. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are so thankful um, for this opportunity to open your word and to receive uh, our bread of life um, spiritually, um, your word. And we pray that this morning that the Holy Spirit would take this word, encourage us, challenge us, grow us, and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Oh, how we love Jesus and how we long to be conformed to his image. So we pray you bless our time together this morning in your word, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, this morning I want to start with an arithmetic question, a math question. If you have an infinite number and subtract a finite number from it, what would your answer be? Or to be more specific, what is the answer to the arithmetic problem? Infinity minus 20,000. What would that equal? I believe the answer is infinity. The only only finite numbers become smaller when you subtract something from them. 
The very meaning of infinite is that when you take away from it, there is no less than when you began. So it seems that the fifth verse in Amazing Grace, that great hymn that John Newton wrote, but he did not write the fifth verse. Um, but I believe this verse speaks to uh, the message this morning. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. In this life, every day that goes by means fewer days yet to live. In the life to come, though, every passing day or century or millennium will mean that the amount of future for us is never diminished. Now, why is that important to us? It's important because Romans 5 begins and ends with two infinite realities that are needed to explain each other and help us sense the magnitude of God's way of salvation. The chapter ends in verse 21, which we just read, with the infinite reality of eternal life. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's aim in the work of redemption is the triumph of grace over sin and death and unto eternal life through Jesus Christ. The eternal refers to the life that will never end. It's an infinite life, life of infinite duration. But is this infinite life going to be a boring life, an ordinary life? Most of the life we know now, extended forever, would not be a very exciting prospect. In fact, none of the life we experience now would be worth extending forever. It would not be good news to us. The most exquisite of our pleasures in this life, on this earth, would become almost torture after the 10,000th repetition. So, this is why the other infinite reality that Paul begins with in chapter 5 is so crucial. Romans chapter 5 begins with, Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Here, instead of saying that our hope is eternal life. Paul says that our hope is actually the glory of God. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. This is crucial to see because this is the reason that our future life must be eternal and why it cannot and will not be boring. 
any amount of time short of eternity would be inadequate for us as finite creatures to experience all of the glory of God. It will take forever for us to see all there is to see and admire all there is to admire and enjoy all there is to enjoy of the glory of our God. Therefore, God ordains that there be eternal life for us. We need to feel the force of this this morning. The glory of God is all that God is for us in his greatness and his excellence. And since God is infinite, and his, his glory must then be infinite. It has no boundaries, no limits, and no end. Sometimes Paul stresses this with a common phrase, the riches of his glory. For example, Romans 9.23, he says, God's purpose is to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that we would know what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. In Philippians 4.19, Paul states, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The point of the phrase is that his glory is a God-sized treasure. It is, not a, it is not small and exhaustible. It will not and cannot run out. You can't spend it down. It is a God-sized wealth. It is infinite. Therefore, it will take us finite creatures in eternity to see it all, to taste it all, to admire it all, and to enjoy it all. A finite creature cannot take it all in at once, the infinite glory, any more than a thimble can take in the Pacific Ocean all at once. And even if you enlarged the thimble to the size of the Pacific Ocean, you would need endless days to dip out the glory of God from the ocean of his glory which has no bottom and it has no shores. So this will not be an in, endless duration of a boring life. It will not be mere repetition of old ecstasies. It will be a ever new sights and taste and wonders and experiences and pleasures forever and ever because of the glory of God is where we will live and move and have our being. So the chapter begins with the hope of the glory of God and ends with the triumph of eternal life, the content and the duration of our future with God. Now, what this does to me is to make me ask, if God's purpose was that we would have eternal life spent in seeing his glory and experiencing his glory. Why didn't he just skip this terrible thing called human history and go straight 
to the goal. Why the creation of Adam and the fall of Adam into sin and the fall and corruption of the whole human race in Adam and the decline of the human race to the point of the flood and then 2,000 years of Israel and, and its sin and misery and then the incarnation of the Son of God, then the horrific death of Jesus and then the resurrection then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then 2,000 more years of sin and misery as the gospel spreads, oh so slowly in a world through an imperfect church, you and I. Why ordain a universe like this on the way to eternal life for the children of God? To which someone might say, maybe he didn't ordain it. Maybe he just started it in hope of something better, but it turned out different than he foreknew. Well, the problem with that idea is the Bible's teaching that God planned things, everything, before the creation of the world. For example, the eternal life promised in Romans 5.21, Paul calls it in Titus 1.2, the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now, the Greek word there translated for long ages ago can literally be translated before times of the ages, meaning from all eternity. God was preparing for the gift of eternal life before he created the world, the universe, humanity. And he knew that this would come not by Adam's works of righteousness, but by the blood-bought grace of his son, Jesus Christ. Because 2 Timothy 1.9 states that we are saved by the grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Grace was planned. And the death of Jesus was planned before the creation of anything. So the question remains, though, why didn't God just skip this terrible thing called human history and go straight to the goal, eternal life? So I want to try to answer that this morning, at least in part, by using Romans 20 through 21 as one window into the mind of God. The Word of God is a window for us into the mind of God. That's why the Word is so important, that we study it, read it, grow in it, because in it we see who God is, how He thinks, what His character is like. So let's look into the window of God's mind through Romans 5, 20 and 21. Paul gives us a glimpse into the answer of this really big question by answering or asking, why then the law? Why was the law given to Moses? Why did God do this particular thing in the way he was working out his saving plan to bring people to eternal life in the presence of his glory? If we can see an answer to this little piece of history, Maybe the answer will apply to the other pieces as well. 
So let's read the text again. Paul is closing this great section of Romans on justification and summarizing his aim by asking the question, why did God give the law of Moses? Why did God pursue his goal of eternal life for his people in this way? Here's what he says in Romans 5, 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's first answer was that the law of Moses was given to increase the transgression. <laughs> Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, the transgression here is singular, and it's a reference to the singular transgression of Adam that he has been talking about all along in this paragraph. Verse 15, by the transgression of one, many die. Verse 17, by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one. Uh, verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Now he says in verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. So I take it to mean that one crucial function of the law is to turn our original sin, that sin that was passed down to all of Adam's posterity. Remember, we are born by nature sinners. So I believe it that here the function of the law is to turn our original sin into actual transgressions of specific commandments. First, we are guilty in Adam, sin and sinful by nature. And then the law confronts us with the specific will of God, the specific character of God that we are to live up to. Don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. And the effect is that it turns sinful nature into specific, actual sinful acts of transgression. One writer said it well, the law makes little atoms out of us all. So what was once one transgression in which we all shared by virtue of the union, our union with Adam that God ordained for all humanity has now, because of the law, become millions upon millions of specific transgressions. As verse 16 said, the free gift arose from many transgressions. So the law of Moses was given to increase the transgression of Adam into millions of specific acts of transgression. And all of us who resist submitting to the law of God because of our rebellious nature. But now, why would God make his purpose this his purpose for the law of Moses. What is the whole point here? Where is this all this multiplied sin and misery going? The second half of verse 20, I believe, takes us a little step closer. 
but where sin increased, don't miss this next part, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The point of increased sin was that this super abounding grace would be known. So the increase of sins, the multiplication of specific transgressions, was not the ultimate point of the law. It was not an end of itself. It was the occasion for something God wanted to do that was more important and far greater, namely to show his super abounding grace to humanity. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But that's not where Paul ends the explanation of why the law came. He goes on in verse 21 with the words, so that. So you can see with the words so that, that something more is about to be pursued. God has a purpose for this super abounding grace. And he tips us off with the words, so that. It's not enough to say that the purpose of the law in giving the law was that grace might be super abounding. That's not specific enough. So he adds another purpose statement. Verse 21. Now sin increases and grace superabounds so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here, as Paul comes to the climax of Romans 5 and of the first great section of Romans on justification, the cymbals are crashing, the trumpets are blaring, the strings are soaring as Paul heaps together the aspects of God's ultimate purpose in the history of redemption. It's not just that grace superabounds, but that this superabounding grace be seen and known as reigning triumphantly over death, sin, and hell. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. God's purpose for the law in all of history is the triumphant reign of his grace. But that is not specific enough either. His purpose is the triumphant reign of grace unto eternal life. As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign to eternal life. And this eternal life, remember, is an endless duration that it will take us to see and know and taste and admire and experience the glory of our God, which we learn now is mainly the glory of his grace. But that too is not specific enough. Paul will not stop until he has based the entire goal and experience of history and eternity on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that as sin reigned in death, 
even so grace would reign to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of history aims at purposes that might magnify, glorify the Lordship of Jesus Christ. All of redemptive history points to one person, and that person is Jesus Christ and His glory and His reigning as Lord. That is why God created the universe. That's why He spent thousands of years preparing for Christ. That's why there was an incarnation and death and resurrection of the Son of God. All things, according to Colossians 1.16, all things are through him and for him. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the triumphant reign of grace unto eternal life is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that too is not specific enough. There's one more part of his summary statement in verse 21. Paul won't leave it out. Because this has been the whole focus since verse 12. Namely, the righteousness of Jesus Christ as the foundation of eternal life. Not our righteousness, not our good works, but the work of Jesus Christ. It's Christ's righteousness. God's purpose for the law and the increase of sin and the superabounding grace is so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I take this righteousness to be the same as in verse 18, which reads, So through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life and it means grace justifies the ungodly on the basis of the righteousness of jesus the obedience of jesus is applied to the believer in this way Grace triumphs over sin and guilt and condemnation, over death, hell, and the grave. There is none righteous, Paul says in Romans 3.10. There is none righteous. No, not one. None of us are righteous. All are guilty before God because of our union with Adam in his first sin. And we see that in this chapter, Romans 5, 12 through 14. And we all become our own little atoms when our depravity meets the law of God and overflows into specific acts of transgression. Therefore, there is no getting right with God, no justification on the basis of deeds done by us in righteousness. We see this in Romans 3.20. Instead, there is one and only hope for us as sinners. A second Adam, Jesus Christ, has, has come into the world and provided both blood and righteousness 
blood to cover our sins and righteousness so that our account is not empty, but filled with perfect obedience. And this is the obedience of Jesus Christ, not ours. Therefore, it is by faith and by faith alone that we receive the grace of justification. Romans 3.28 and Romans 5.17. And we obtain eternal life on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. And this eternal life is the hope of the glory of God. The aim of all creation and all history, all redemption, is the glory of God's triumphant grace through the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, freeing us from sin, guilt, condemnation, and giving us a never-ending life where after 10,000 years of seeing and admiring and enjoying the glory of the Son of the living God, we will only have just begun. Praise Him. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King. The triumphs of His grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Praise God. Praise God. He has done the work. He is the one that sought us and bought us with the blood of his precious son, Jesus Christ. And we will get the joy because of what he has done to experience the glory of God for all eternity, not based on our righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's done it all. And he deserves all the glory. My salvation is solely based on his work and his work alone. Praise God. Praise God. I'm just um, excited this morning, so you'll have to forgive me. We're going to pray and end it out this morning. Father, we are so grateful for all of your goodness and grace towards us. May you bless your people.